Thank you for listening to the Faith Bible Church podcast. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit us at faithbiblemd.org. Thank you, Suzanne, and thank you to all the team that worked with her. You may have a seat. Kids Choir is always wonderful. It takes a great deal of time and commitment from many people to put this all together. And it's no small challenge to pull off this type of production. We're very grateful for the vision and the work that Suzanne Rogg and her team puts into it because she doesn't have to do it. Is This is not something the church has hired or pays her to do. Hmm, really? She does this all as a volunteer? Why would she do that? Why indeed? Let's talk about that. I invite you to take your copy of the Word of God and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And we're in verse 25, and you're thinking, Hebrews, oh, that's not a Christmas passage. No, it's not. Uh, we're going to continue on in our study. We will get to a Christmas message on the 24th, but we're going to continue right on chapter and verse. But actually, I think there's something in here that does relate uh, and is an important message for us. And we always kind of think that when we're coming to these passages in our study that somebody is here... God's divinely had you here for this. Maybe this is something you needed to learn today and something that will challenge you. But we're in chapter 12, verse 25. The author says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth but now he has promised saying yet one more once more i shake not only the earth but also heaven now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain therefore since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken let us have grace by which we may serve god acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So he starts off here, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. Well, who's that? Because we just kind of jumped right in here in chapter 12. Well, to answer that question, I have to take you all the way back to like two years ago when we started this book, Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 1, God, who in various times and in various ways spoke and passed through the to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoke to us by his Son. Who's speaking? God the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. That's who we're listening to today. Back when I was uh, coaching high school basketball in Canada, I would say to the team, we're going to come in at 6.30 in the morning. And we're going to practice at that early three times a week. And then you're going to stick around after school and practice in the afternoon, four days a week. So we can get ready for the season. And the kids would say, okay. And they do exactly what I told them to do. Nobody ever complained or questioned. They would just show up and do it. Later on in life, I was able to coach at the college level and the college team. I said to the players at the beginning of the year, we're going to have this preseason conditioning time where we're going to do all this running to get in shape. And then we're going to have afternoon practices as well. And you guys are going to come together. And we're going to work on basketball skills. And one guy said, uh, coach, what if we don't? It's like, 
Don't what? What if we don't do the conditioning? Never had that happen before. Never had that level of straight up challenge. I want to be on the team. I just don't want to do the things you're saying the team's going to do. What will happen? So what motivates you to do the things you don't feel like doing, but you know you ought to do them? Now, the interesting thing about the two teams, the high school team, it was a Christian school in our church. I uh, was the youth pastor at the time. I did the coaching because I loved it. It was a great way to connect with the teenagers, a way to build relationships. But I didn't have to do the coaching. It would not have affected my position as youth pastor. They didn't hire me to be a coach. That was just my own initiative. But the kids, they really did want to be on the team. It was pretty much the only thing to do in that little school. Most of the high school boys in the school were actually on the team because there was only like 15 kids and 12 of them were on the team. The camaraderie, the fun, you know, the away games, eating at McDonald's, you know, just we won a lot of games. Everybody wanted to be on it. So I could say to those kids, if you miss practice, if you don't come to the morning practices, you won't be on the team. And they would say, no, I'll be there. Please don't kick me off the team. College team was different. Wasn't a big deal to be on the team. There was very little interest in sports in the student body. It was all I could do to scrounge up 12 players who actually wanted to be on the team. So you didn't actually have to be any good. There was no tryouts. There was no cuts. I just had extra uniforms and I threw them on whoever showed up to practice. And uh, that was the deal. But uh, the thing with that team is uh, I coach sports for the sports department at the college and they, in exchange, gave me some housing. I had an on-campus apartment and I needed that housing. Otherwise, we'd have been like living in Northern Virginia with my in-laws, which we didn't want to do, or living in a van <coughs> down by the river. <coughs> so here was my challenge. I needed the team more than they needed me. And the young fellow who asked me the question, what if we don't, coach? He was the best player on the team. So I really needed him to stick with it. And this was a leadership challenge. How do I motivate people to follow me, especially when it's things that they don't want to do? So I could have drawn a hard line. You don't condition, you won't play. But what if he said, fine, whatever, I don't care and I don't want to play. I could have lost the whole team. I could have lost the season. I could have lost my housing. So instead of taking a hard stance, you know, no conditioning, you can't be on the team. <clears throat> Rather, I spun the big picture. Well, I says, if we don't condition, then we will be in poor shape. And we will get beat by other teams who are in better shape. And we will be big losers. And that will stink. And he said, huh, that's true. And so he conceded to participate in the conditioning. And I passed that leadership challenge. And it was a question I never forgot. What if we don't? Because it is a good question. So many of you folks have done military service, been in the military, you get an order. And if you said to your commanding officer, uh, sir, what if we don't? What would happen? Every military service member takes an oath to obey orders from the President of the United States 
and the officers that are appointed over them. And this promise is not merely a formality, rather it is the cornerstone of military discipline. So what happens if a service member fails to uphold the oath and disobeys a direct order? Well, Article 92 criminalizes the failure to obey lawful orders or regulations. Punishment can range from simple reprimands to forfeiture of pay to confinement up to two years or dishonorable discharge. So it's clearly stated, you can lose your rank, you can lose your pay, you can be in prison, you can get dishonorably discharged. In the business world, here's your assignment, do your job. Uh, boss, what if I don't? Well, that's simple, you're fired. You get no paycheck. If you're leading the military or in a work setting, you have these strong consequences to motivate people to do as you say. Even teachers in school, you don't get this done, you'll fail, you'll fail the class. But trying to lead a non-profit, trying to lead a volunteer-led organization, a ministry, a children's choir, trying to lead something where people's participation is optional, this is something that really challenges one's leadership skills. How do you motivate people to do things they don't feel like doing if you can't punish them or you can't withhold their pay? You know, we had our annual meeting this past week and we, we passed a million dollar budget. Well, what if people said at the meeting, uh, no, no, we vote no, and we're not going to give you that money, and we don't feel like showing up at church anymore. What would I do? Not too much. I can't make you attend. I can't make anybody give any money. I've got no physical power, no legal authority. Our security team will not show up with a paddy wagon and take you into custody. What would you do, Pastor Up? The author here in Hebrews 12 is facing that kind of questioning and mindset. The Jewish people had a great deal of motivation to be faithful to their Judaism. They had 1,600 years of laws and religious systems that governed their culture. All of their families, all of their communities, they were all raised to go to the temple, to the festivals, to pay the tithes, to perform the sacrifices. If you didn't do these things, you wouldn't be in the community. Nobody would trust you. Nobody would do any business with you. Nobody would allow their daughter to marry you. This would bring great shame upon your parents and your family name, and you might as well just go live with the lepers. The high priests and the Sanhedrin, they had a temple guard. They had soldiers who could carry out orders to arrest people. Very powerful motivators, just like Article 92. But now, here in Hebrews, these people have walked away from their Jewish culture. They've been baptized, and now they're following Jesus. They're experiencing all this resentment and rejection from the Jewish culture. It's why Jesus said, to those who follow him, you have to be willing to love him more than mother and father. You might have to love him more than your own family. It cost people greatly to believe in Jesus and it did not feel good. What if they decided, I don't wanna put up with that physical relational abuse anymore? What could the author do? What could the church do? The local church does not have the power to physically punish you, no fines, arrests, incarceration, and we don't whip people. Contrary to popular belief. On the contrary, we have to let people exercise their free will and make choices. So the question, what if we don't? The answer is, in the short term, nothing will happen to you. 
But let me enlighten you on what will happen down the road. Let me draw your attention to the big picture. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. What if we don't? For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? So that verse is a reference to our previous observation that we made last week. We've not come to Sinai, but we have come to Zion. We are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, last week, I hope to inspire you with the grand thought that we're heading to this glorious, eternal destiny. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. Zion is different than Sinai. When the people came followed Moses to Mount Sinai, we learned that God came down to the mountain and spoke, and it was a fearsome scene, looking back at verse 18, chapter 12, verse 18, you, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. They couldn't endure what was commanded. And if such, so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses says, I'm exceedingly afraid and tremble. That was when God came down to the mountain to talk to Israel. So to touch the mountain against God's will would result in death. So the author says, for if they did not escape who refused to spoke on earth when God was on the mountain speaking on earth, he says to us, how much more shall we escape if we turn away from one who speaks from heaven? How much more? Now we have once again what is called an affortatory argument. It's been a while since we've seen one of these. The author uses the how much more, how much greater rationale by which he continues to show the people the big picture. If there's a couple examples of these, just to refresh your memory on them. Remember, he said, if the angels were great, how much greater is the son of God? If the animal sacrifices had a level of effectiveness in satisfying the wrath of God, how much more the sacrifice of God's own son, a perfect sacrifice for sins. And then here in chapter 12, if while God visited Mount Sinai, he expected zero tolerance for disobedience, if they could not escape, how much more shall we not escape from the one who speaks from heaven? Not on the mountain, but from heaven. So last week we tried to inspire you with the majestic thoughts of heaven, but... What if we don't want heaven? What, what if we don't want to march to Zion? Well, God at Sinai shook the mountain, he tells us in verse 26, whose voice shook the earth. But now he has promised saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. So this speaking from heaven won't just shake the earth, it will shake everything. But now... He has promised saying yet once more. I, was, I, I stopped on that phrase for a minute. I was like, what is, what is that statement a reference to? Where, where's this quote coming? It's a quote. Where's it coming from? And oh, let me tell you that that right there, yet once more, is a big deal. I think that this is a phrase that the audience would have instantly remembered. They, they would know this reference. You know, for us, there are these 
uh, famous references that if I say I start them, we automatically all have them memorized, right? John 3.16, Hannah uh, quoted it today for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have these, these precious promises that we hang on to. Yet one more time, for a Jewish audience, that's a big promise that they would all know and hang on to. It's a quote from Haggai chapter 2, verse 6 through 9. We got the slides for you this morning, if you want to turn to Haggai 2, but you can follow along here. For thus says the Lord of hosts, and look how many times he says, thus says the Lord of hosts here. Once more in a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, sea and dry land. I will shake all nations. They shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver's mine. The gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of the latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Now, the prophet Haggai was back in the time of Israel's return from exile. Israel had come out of Babylon, and they were back in the city of Jerusalem. They were rebuilding the walls. They had built their homes, but they hadn't gotten around to fixing up the temple yet. And God said, uh, Haggai, the prophet, he sent them to get them motivated to get at building the temple, God's house. So the people rallied and they did it. They rebuilt the temple, but the old people were very discouraged with it because they remembered Solomon's temple, the glory, the splendor, the gold and the fine craftsmanship. And the second temple that they built, it, it was meager. It was uninspiring. But God said to them, is not the building, it's not the building that is great. It's my spirit that is great and glorious. So chapter two, verse number three through five, he said, who left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, it, it it's not in your eyes as nothing. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work for I am with you. Work for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I have covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains upon you. Do not fear. The time when they came out of Egypt at Sinai, my spirit was with you. Remember the tabernacle that Moses built? It was what? <clears throat> Just a portable tent. Right? It wasn't particularly glorious either, but rather it was God's spirit, God's presence that brought the power to the nation. And at our business meeting, we were uh, going through and reviewing our budget and we were talking about our plans and our programs and the people that came in in 2023 and all the funds that were, were given. And I asked this question, why is Faith Bible Church working and why is it growing and why are we being blessed? And there's lots of ingredients, but it really all boils down to this one fundamental thing. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
We build on this promise that God has decreed in Isaiah 55, verse number 11. So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing that I have sent it. As God said to Zechariah, we too have to remember it is not by might nor by power, but it is by God's spirits. Do not now and do not ever underestimate the power of God and what he plans to do. Haggai chapter two, the, the, the prophet said, thus says the Lord one more time, in a little while I will shake heaven and earth, sea and dry land. I will shake all the nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. That's a familiar phrase, the desire of all nations. Do you remember that one? Hymn number 123. O come, he come, Emmanuel, force verse. Remember that verse? O come, desire of nations come. Bring all people in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrel cease and fill the whole world with heaven's peace. Rejoice, rejoice. Do all nations desire Jesus? No. The desire of nations is what? All the wealth all the power, sovereignty over the whole world, all the empires from antiquities all the way up to this present day, everybody wants to rule the world. But no one has ever succeeded in getting it all. There's always some rebel force that withstands the empire. Now you think I'm talking about Star Wars. No, I'm not, right? There's always some King Leonidas with his 300 Greeks that withstands the Persian Empire. There's always some crazy Celts up there that can't be tamed by the Roman Empire, so they have to build a wall. There's always some Americans that will revolt against the British Empire. No nation has ever been able to get all that they desire. The Great Reset, the globalists who are currently threatening to take over the whole world, they're never going to get it all. They don't have the power to do so. Not while the one who restrains is still at work on the earth. Only once the restrainer is removed can the Antichrist come and bring in a one world government. The desire of nations is all the wealth, all the power, sovereignty over all. And the only time that's ever going to be completely accomplished is Jesus will come and fulfill the desire of nations, according to Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. And he says, The desire of nations, I will fill the temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine. So what is that passage talking about? The rule of the Messiah, the return of King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever, King of kings forever. I have a few girls, you're supposed to do that. And Lord of lords Hallelujah. I thought, never mind. Go watch Handel's Messiah. It'll inspire you this Christmas. The author of Hebrews has answered his question, why we ought not refuse to listen by quoting Haggai chapter two. God is going to shake everything. The word shake occurs 80 times in scripture. It is a reoccurring theme all throughout the Bible. The imagery conveys a very life-threatening situation, an earthquake that topples buildings, a storm at the sea that sinks a boat. Have you ever seen a dog get a hold of a cat and flail it around till it dies? Just shake the life out of it? The concept of shaking violently is a powerful, destructive action. God will shake everything, and when he does, it will all collapse. Verse 27 says, Now this 
yet one more time indicates the removal of all things that are being shaken as of the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Removal of all things which are being shaken. Question, what do you have so much confidence in that you believe it's unshakable? What do you think is unshakable? Your job? Your savings? I mean, corporations, jobs, economies, they're not very stable, are they? Savings can evaporate very quickly. Anytime we see that crash, one of those bubbles burst, everybody's 401ks, oh, they all take a dive, right? Is, is it the country, our institutions, you know, the military? I don't know, $36 million in debt and trillion dollars in debt. And uh, last, I just heard that the interest on that is now a trillion dollars a year. Just jacking it up. That's kind of shaky ground, don't you think? And who do we owe $36 trillion to anyways? What if they repossess us, right? What if they say, oh, we actually own the military and the land and all your infrastructure? What are we going to do? Is your life unshakable? Your health unshakable? Do you remember when they, uh, they locked everything down and they stuck us in our homes and threatened to take away our jobs if we didn't get vaccines? And lots of people here lost jobs. And lots of people died in that time. Everything got shaken. And that wasn't even that long ago, right? Think back now. It wasn't that long ago. How firm a foundation is your life built upon? If all these events can shake it that we've experienced, what will happen when God finally decides to really shake things hard? Well, now, my friends, we're talking about the book of Revelation. You know, people say, on biblical proportions. Now, we have yet to see biblical proportions of what God is really going to do when he shakes things up. Haggai, along with the other Old Testament prophets, were always looking forward to the great and terrible day of the Lord. Verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. So this is the answer to the question, what if we don't? If you refuse to listen to the word of God, well, I will do nothing. But as more and more people are rejecting the word of God and more and more the corruption, the decay, the cup of indignation fills up, the time of shaking draws near. One day, all heaven and all earth will be shaken and everything that is not built on the kingdom of God will collapse. Everyone who has not built their lives on the rock of our salvation will be washed away in this coming tsunami. Anything that is not pure and holy will be burned with the fire. Paul tells us about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 9. For we are God's workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or straw, let each one's work become clear, for on the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's is burned, he will suffer loss. We are so very grateful for the vision and the work of Suzanne Rog and her team 
that they put into the kids' choir, teaching the children about Jesus through song and teaching all of us about Jesus through the production. We're very thankful because she doesn't have to do any of this. This is not something we pay her to do. She does it as a volunteer. Why would she do this? I will be so bold to speak for her today because I think I know Suzanne's heart. This is her way of using her gifts to build the kingdom of God, to build on something that will not be shaken. You know, she's not going to get an Oscar or a Golden Globe. For, I know it's hard to believe that this production is, you know, we live streamed it and it's probably not going to win an award. But while all of Hollywood will collapse in the big shakeup, and we'll all go up in flames one day. But Jesus will say to Suzanne, that was so much fun to hear children singing my praises. Thank you, Suzanne. Yet one more time indicates the removal of those things that are being shaking. As of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. What are the things that cannot be shaken? All that we have done to build the kingdom of God. The service that is done by faith and reverence and godly fear. This is what will not be shaken. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world that will not be shaken. And we quote uh, the psalmist, David says in Psalms 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the kingdom of God. The, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High, God is in her midst at the break of dawn. The nations rage, the kingdoms were moved, he uttered his voice, the earth melted. The utterance of his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. When the Messiah came, first time at Christmas, most people missed it. People are still missing the Messiah today. And God speaks to us today through his son, Jesus Christ. We ought to listen and we ought to follow him to Zion. Yeah, but what if we don't, Pastor Rob? There's a lot of things in the Bible. The Bible says all kinds of things that I don't agree with. Scholars no longer accept the Bible as the word of God. Society no longer reveres God. Sociologists will tell you America is a post-Christian nation. I have the free will to accept Jesus or reject him. What if I refuse? What are you going to do? Me? Not a blessed thing. You don't need to lose one second of sleep worrying about me. It's God himself, the spirit of the Lord that you're contending with. Our God is a consuming fire. You see, he was born a baby, but he's coming back, a great and mighty king. Lord Jesus, we just come to you now and we pray that as we think about your came you, when you came the first time, that we be all so mindful to be obedient, to watch and be ready, that you are going to return. And this time, now, in this moment, we live with peace and we live in grace. And we have this freedom to come 
All who, who will may come. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But there is coming a time when you will come back and there will be no more grace. There will be a time of judgment and wrath and shaking and a consuming of fire. And may we be ready for that day. May each and every person here today would turn to you, call upon your name, believe your promises, receive your sacrifice and be saved. We pray all this in Jesus' name.